Let's pray. Risen Lord Jesus, you rule your kingdom by your word and your spirit. Please do that tonight. Open our hearts by your spirit to understand, believe and love what your word tells us. Blow our minds and grow our confidence in you, our mighty living saviour. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've uh, noticed this verse in the Bible. It's a bit of a head scratcher. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. This verse. You can turn to it. (laughs) There it is. Uh, Have you ever noticed this verse? Uh, He was delivered over to death for our sins... And was raised to life for our justification. Now, if you're new with us tonight, let me bring you into the loop on why that's a bit of a confusing verse. And it's really good to have you with us uh, every week. We have new people with us. And uh, we're doing a 10-week series on salvation. We're going deep into the heart of Christianity. Let me give you the big picture. First of all, we saw salvation in general. We saw that it's salvation from hell by God's gift, uh, by grace. Not by what we do, but simply by faith which he gives us by his spirit through his word and all of the blessings of salvation are found in Jesus. That was the big picture. The rest of the term, what we're doing is we are going deeper into that. And so first of all, we're seeing salvation achieved and then from next week onwards to the the end of the term, salvation applied. We're going to go deeper into some of the things we get in salvation. We're made right with God, adopted into his family, changed to be like him and so on. Romans 4 verse 25 is puzzling because we usually think salvation was achieved by Jesus' death. So what's the resurrection doing in here? We saw um, last week Jesus' sacrifice of atonement on the cross. We saw that Jesus' death did everything needed to make us right with God. That's actually what the word justification means in this verse. It'll come up again. Um, we got that verse? Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's, uh, that's what the word justification means. It means made right with God. And we'll, we'll actually look more at that next week. But notice this verse, Romans chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. It says we are justified, made right with God, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. And so if you're new with us tonight... Hear me really clearly. The message of Christianity is not that you need to do more for God, but look what God has done for you. It's not um, clean your life up, but that Jesus' death washes you clean. There's a problem between you and God. You are filthy with all the sin that you've done. God is holy. He's so pure that he hates even the sight of evil. How could we possibly approach to uh, to be near God forever in heaven? The good news is Jesus' death does everything needed once for all to wash away that sin. And so last week we saw Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. We've been made holy, pure before God through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all on the cross. Drive away, no more to pay. Actually, don't drive away, drive towards God. Now you can have a relationship with him all because of the cross. That's Christianity and all of that is the glorious truth of the Bible. But do you see why... Romans 4.25 is a weird verse. It says Jesus died for our sins, and that's what you'd expect, that makes sense. But then it says he was raised for our justification. 
But I thought Jesus' death did that. Which is it? If Jesus' death makes us right with God, how can his resurrection do that? That's what we're going to dig into tonight. How does Jesus' resurrection contribute to our salvation? And here's what I'm praying that God will do through his word tonight. Number one, blow your minds. I want to to expand your view of salvation to to show it's bigger than you realize and more of Jesus' life and work contribute to it than you realize without, and this is crucial, without in any way taking away from the cross at the center. It's the foundation, the place atonement is actually made. But I want to blow your minds so that you will then explode in praise to God and that the flame of your love, your awe, your appreciation will burn all the brighter. Now that means, just as a heads up, um, don't worry if you don't follow every detail tonight. Okay? I want to show you that there are things here you never knew, that you could spend the rest of your life digging into. The message of Christianity, the message of salvation is so simple, even a child can understand it. But it is so rich and deep, you could spend the rest of your life going deeper and deeper. There's number one. Number two, I want to grow your confidence. I want you to walk out of here more sure than ever that you will be saved forever, which will then lead to more joy in the Christian life and more courage as you face the trials of life. And so here's the question. How does Jesus' resurrection contribute to our salvation? And here it is. It's, it's more than proof. That's how we often think about the resurrection, isn't it? as proof. The big thing tonight is that the resurrection is much more than that. It actually achieves something. But I just want to pause and say it is proof. It's proof of God. God is real. Otherwise, people just stay dead. Is that correct? Yes. As far as, as, far as we can tell, people stay dead unless there's an all-powerful God who can raise the dead, which is then proof of the afterlife. There is life after death because he lived after death, if, if that happened. And, and it's proof of Jesus' identity that he is who he said he is because (laughs) he claimed to be the son of God. Now, if he was lying about that, why would God raise him from the dead? When he raised Jesus from the dead, it vindicated his claims about himself. And it also vindicated his, his righteousness, his goodness. You see, if Jesus was a sinner, he would have just stayed dead like everybody else. That's the punishment for sin. And so when God rose Jesus from the grave, it declared to the world, this man had no sin. You following? It vindicated his righteousness. But more than that, it was proof, it was vindication that the cross worked. Think about it. If if the cross didn't work, if it didn't completely deal with sin and take it all away, Jesus would have just stayed dead because that's the punishment for sin. And so when Jesus rose from the grave, in fact, when God the Father rose Jesus from the grave, God declared to the world, those sins are gone now. They're dealt with. The cross worked. And so no wonder we use the resurrection as proof, yeah? And actually, as a historical fact, it's compelling. You can check out the evidence for yourself. In fact, tomorrow night, come along at at Even Night Life. That's what we're going to be, part of what we're going to be doing. One of the, my story, one of the big reasons that I became a Christian is the evidence that Jesus was a real man who, who really died on a Roman cross and then who really came back to life days later. Now, I won't go into it all tonight, come back tomorrow night and hear that. But let me give you one piece. It's the eyewitness testimony. We've got an example in this passage. In fact, if you shut your Bible, open it up again to Acts chapter 2, because that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Now, if you don't have a Bible, look on with someone near you. But verse 32, look what Peter says. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all 
witnesses. Now, I've had this conversation a few times. The next thing people say is, yeah, 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 but they could have been making it up. And it's good to ask questions, but that idea only works from a distance. It only works if you squint. Oops. Um, If you get close enough to look at the facts of history, that idea that they just made it up, it doesn't stack up. Let me just show you quickly what the Roman historian Tacitus said. He's pretty buff for a historian, don't you think? In his book, The Annals, um, about the history of the Roman Empire up to his day, he's writing less than 100 years after Jesus. And this bit is about a fire that ripped through Rome um, when he was about 9 or 10 years old, 30 years after Jesus lived. And he says that the Emperor Nero blamed it on Christians, which shows a couple of things. One, just a few decades after Jesus' life, there was already a community of Christians worshipping Jesus in Rome. And number two, that they were persecuted. That means punished for being Christians. So have a look. Nero fastened the guilt for the fire. He blamed it. And inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Now all of that fits exactly with what the Bible says. But look at this. He's... Uh, Look what Tacitus says happened to the Christians in Rome. A most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but then even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their centre and become popular. He's not a fan of Christianity, is he? Now that paragraph there, that's just all background info. And then he comes back to Nero blaming the Christians for the fire. Accordingly, because he blamed them for the fire, an arrest was made first of all who pleaded guilty, guilty to being Christians, then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of setting the city on fire, firing the city, as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination, like candles, when daylight had expired. Now, this is three decades after Jesus. Not even all the books of the New Testament had finished being written by this point. And that's what it's like to be a Christian in Rome. And so that's why I say um, the idea that they just made it up, it only works if you squint, it only works from a distance. When you know the facts of history, you think, why would they make it up? What are they getting out of it? This description from Tacitus fits exactly with the way that the New Testament says that Christians were treated. It fits with what the book of Acts that we're reading tonight says. Um, we, we know from Paul's letters, that one in Philippians, he writes that from a prison in Rome within a few years of this fire. He talks about his chains and the Roman guards. If they're making it up, if Paul's making it up, why? What are they getting out of it? Jail? Being set on fire? Death in the end? Eleven of the twelve disciples ended up being killed because they refused to stop preaching that they were witnesses of Jesus raised from the dead. So whatever else you want to believe, they, they just weren't making it up. They really believed what they were saying. And so people then say, well, maybe they were just crazy. Well, their writings are the most insightful, transformational writings in history. Is that what crazy people produce? What was it that turned a bunch of nobodies, fishermen, tax collectors, into sold out? I'll die for this guy. I'll spend my life traveling the known world, telling everyone I can about this guy, so that they really did turn the world upside down. What, what happened? 
to change them. The only explanation that makes sense is that they really did see him dead and then alive again. And many others did too. And so that it just spread like a bushfire. The evidence for the resurrection is very compelling. Come tomorrow night, consider that more. But this is what the apostles first preached. So verse 32, not just ideas, but a real event that they said, we saw for ourselves, we're witnesses. And so tonight, that's what I'm preaching as well. Not just ideas, but an event. And I want you to, to know that that really happened because that event changes everything. Because it's not just proof, it actually achieves something. And so what does the resurrection actually contribute to our salvation? Well, here's number one. It's why Jesus is now on the throne as Lord. It's why Jesus is now on the throne as Lord. Keep Acts chapter 2 open and look at verse 36. This is Peter the disciple and it's after Jesus has died and then been raised and then he spent... 40 weeks, oh, sorry, 40 days with them. Uh, you find that out, Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, and then he goes back to be with his father the way he said he would, which is what's called the, the ascension. Jesus ascended. Uh, he went up, um, Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Not that heaven is literally up, but uh, capturing the idea that he left this world to be with his father until the day when he will return. And then, chapter 2, verse 3, the Holy Spirit has come to them in a very visible way. More visible than the way he normally comes, in fact. So that everyone can see that it's happened. And the disciples start to talk about Jesus in languages that they've never learned. Have you tried to learn a language? It's impossible. Well, some people do it with a great amount of effort. They, overnight, can speak languages. And so um, the crowd is amazed, verse 11. We can hear them talking about God in our own languages. How's that happened? Well, Peter gets up to preach to the crowd about what's happened, verse 14. And he says, verse 23, that Jesus has been killed, but verse 24, he's been raised from the dead. And so look at his conclusion, verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, here's the thing to notice. He doesn't just say this proves that he's the Messiah. He says, now God has made him Lord and Messiah. Hang on. Hasn't Jesus always been the Lord? Well, yeah, he, he's God's son. So he's always been the creator. Therefore, he's always actually been his, his rightful ruler or the universe's rightful ruler. But here, a new thing happens. And I'll, I'll try and give an illustration. The Lion King. Monique says it's not that good of a movie. She's just wrong. It's the best movie there is. After Mufasa dies, Simba is the rightful king, but he runs away, he learns Hakuna Matata, he grows up years on that miraculous log where you sing a song across it and you become an adult. Um, And then the kingdom rots under Scar, and eventually Nala and Rafiki convince him to return to Pride Rock, and he defeats Scar and he takes his place on the throne and he's the actively ruling king. It's not a perfect analogy. I'm not saying Zazu is the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Jesus didn't run away from the kingdom and and just go, no worries, you know. Actually, the kingdom ran away from him. It rejected the God who made it. And so he came into it as a man. He took on human nature. But as he walks around Palestine and, and then gets killed, it's not obvious, is it, that he's actually the ruler of everything. 
But in the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus finally returns to Pride Rock. He, he finally takes the throne that is, that is rightfully his. God the Father gives him a role, an office, an authority as the Lord of all, and he begins his active reign as that Lord. I wonder if you've ever noticed that. Sometimes we, we pass over it in um, some biblical um, phrases. And so actually, if we go to the next slide, you've got um, Matthew 28, after the resurrection, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Yes, he's got the right, but now it's been given to him. Philippians 2, therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place. There's this movement here as Jesus takes the throne. And so the key thing to get is this. Jesus' resurrection is a key stepping stone on his path to being enthroned as the ruling Lord of all. But why is that? Why is that? Because it fulfills the Old Testament Messiah prophecies. Now, if, you, if you're new with us, new to the Bible, it helps to know that there are two parts. You've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament's all written very soon after Jesus, but the Old Testament is, it's in the name, it's older. It's, it's written centuries before Jesus. And it promised a coming Messiah. The word Messiah means um, a specially anointed one, anointed by God. And actually, that's what the word Christ means. That's the same word in Greek. Messiah, Hebrew, Christ, Greek. Prophecy after prophecy explained what this coming Messiah would look like and what he would bring. And then centuries later, Jesus fulfills them all perfectly. It's, it's another compelling reason to, to believe that this really is the word of God. It really is extraordinary. These aren't vague prophecies. They're specific, they're detailed, they add up to a big picture that only one person can fulfill. And we're not going to go through them all tonight for time, but I just want to point out two very significant ones in this passage that Peter picks up. And so first of all, have a look at Acts 2, verse 25. Peter quotes from the Old Testament, he quotes Psalm 16. That's a song that King David wrote, and it's a longish quote that he quotes there. But look at verse 27. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. A thousand years before Jesus, King David wrote about a resurrection. God won't leave his Holy One dead. And then Peter points out the obvious problem. David's writing this song, but David's dead. He did die. You, you can go visit his tomb. And Peter says that shows us that David wasn't talking about himself, but rather look at verse 30. He was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead. David was writing about one of his descendants that God had made a promise to him about. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, one of the most important parts of the Old Testament, you can see it on the screen, God promised that one of David's offspring would be king forever. Now that is a massive promise, especially for Aussies. Because do you remember the time we had like five prime ministers in five years? What was it? Like Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, Abbott, Turnbull? Snip, snap, snip, snap, snip, snap. Any Office fans? Uh, so it's a big promise for an Australian. But it was a big promise for David too. One of your descendants will be king forever. He's thought a lot about it. How can that be? What does that even mean? And he's worked out, whatever it means, it means that this 
descendant of mine somehow has to live forever. That's our qualification of the one who will be the promised king, the Messiah. So he's, he's, he's so blown away by this, he's even written songs about it, Psalm 16. And then Jesus comes, who actually was descended from David, one of his great, 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 I don't know how many greats, grandkids. And he rises from the dead. Bam. He, he fulfills the prophecy, and by fulfilling it, he ticks off one of the key qualifications of being the Messiah. His Messiah resume just levels up. And then when he ascends... He ticks off another one. So look at Acts chapter 2, verse 34. Peter quotes another one of David's songs, this time Psalm 110, verse 34. This is another prophecy about the Messiah. David writes, The Lord, that's God, says to my Lord, that's the Messiah. David's writing a song about someone that will come in the future that's so great that even King David will call him my Lord. Not God, because, well, he is God, but in this, there's two. The Lord says to my Lord, and David prophesies that God will say to this Messiah, the Lord says to my Lord, come up here, join me on my throne. Sit at my right hand, the place of honour, the place of power. And then God says, I'll help you defeat all your enemies. And this is where it all comes together. You see, the Messiah was never just going to be the king of the Jews. He was promised to sit with God the Father on the throne as the promised Lord of all people. You read the rest of Psalm 110, Psalm 2, you see that. And then in Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, it happens. Do you see how the resurrection contributes? Verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has now made him Lord and Messiah. The resurrection is how he ticks off the qualifications as well as how he actually gets to be on the throne. But how does that contribute to our salvation? Well, here's the first way this expands our view of salvation. Ready for this? Salvation is bigger than just getting you to heaven. Salvation, God's plan to save the world, is actually about putting the whole universe right. And so because Jesus is on the throne as Lord, he is in the right place. It's the first step to putting the universe right. He's where he's supposed to be. Two weeks ago, we saw that, didn't we? That the universe is actually all about Jesus. And our world rejected him. But by raising Jesus from the dead, God is putting things back the way they should be, putting him in the center where he belongs. And so you know what? If everything else in our universe was perfect, but Jesus wasn't on the throne, it wouldn't be back to right. But secondly, it's because Jesus, Jesus is, is Lord, he's able to send out the message of salvation. That's what we saw in Matthew 28. All authority, Jesus says, has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Because Jesus has been raised and is now therefore the ruling Lord, he's able to send his people out to spread that word that he's the Lord, to bring people back under his rule, back into his kingdom, where that's where salvation is found. And so Jesus expands his rule as king in every heart that turns to him. Think about this. How does Jesus conquer his enemies? One of his ways, his favorite way, is to win them back to being his friends through his love. He, he invites his enemies to become his friends and says, all will be forgiven so that you can be part of that world put right. 
And then thirdly, because he's the risen Lord, he is now able and will return to restore all things. He will defeat our enemies and his enemies of Satan, sin and death. He'll put a stop to them forever and he'll remake the world. A a glorious new creation like we heard a few weeks ago, restored forever. And so that is actually how he'll finish his work of bringing all things under his, his rule. His resurrection starts it, his return will finish it. God's plan of salvation has always been bigger than just getting you to heaven. The future will be a really good place to be because Jesus rose. And so what does this mean for you? Apart from all of that, it means you can have confidence. You can't put your faith in a dead guy. The dead guy can't save you. But we've got a living Lord. A living Lord. And so you can trust Him to save you. And He can make sure that you, me, we, will make it to the end. You know, there's a song we sing. I'm not going to sing it, but I'll say it. To this I hold. My shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley, He will lead. How do you know that you will make it to the end, still trusting Jesus and be saved? If it was up to you, you probably wouldn't. But your shepherd will defend you. And he'll do it because he's the living Lord. And there's nothing in the world with more power, more authority than him. He will help you to the end. And I think sometimes people don't become Christians because they're worried that they won't be able to stick at it. You, know, you don't want to start something you're not going to finish. Well, if that's you tonight, can I say, you're actually right about that, you can't. But He can. He can help you to keep following Him. Because He's the living Lord. And so this truth gives you confidence to become a Christian, to, to be saved. But more than that, it gives you confidence that if you do that, if you make Jesus your Lord you will be on the right side of history. When people mock you for being a Christian, or even abuse you or or hate you, know that they're wrong. They're wrong. The truth is Jesus. The Lord is Jesus. The future is Jesus. If your trust is in him, one day he will vindicate you. And all of that has big implications as well for anyone who says no to Jesus. Look how the penny drops for the crowd in this passage. Acts chapter 2 verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. You know that feeling, that sickening feeling when you know you've, you've made a terrible mistake? They said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Because Peter said to them, You killed the Lord. They realize who Jesus is. And suddenly they see how serious it is how you treat him. It's not just a lifestyle choice, it's rebellion against the true Lord. Sometimes people say, I don't I don't really see a need for Jesus in my life. Well, it's not your life. It's like you've found a a house by the beach where the owner is away. 
and you've started living in it. And someone knocks on the door, you know the owner's coming back? Oh, I don't really see a need for the owner. Go away, just, just let me enjoy my house. Well, what will happen when the true owner does walk in the door? You see, our Lord welcomes back people to himself with open arms and says, all is forgiven. But for those who continue to say no to even that, well, one day it'll be too late. So, brothers and sisters, we go out into a world that is lost, that doesn't know what to believe, that's disconnected from its past, that has no hope for its future and nothing solid to build a life on. You know, if if we're honest, our lives are just full of evidence that we're not very good at being lords. We're not very good at running our life. And we go out into that world with good news of someone who does know how to run your life. Someone you can build your life on. The Lord. The one promised from ancient times. The one who will bring a glorious future. Who's bigger than you, stronger than you, wiser than you, kinder than you. And when you turn to him, he fills your life with love and you come back to reality. You, you no longer pretend that you're the Lord of a borrowed house, squatting until the owner returns. No, you become friends with the real owner. That's good news. There's how resurrection contributes to our salvation. A bunch of things there, if I was to boil it down. It brings you back to the true Lord. And it puts the true Lord on the throne where he belongs. As part of how the resurrection contributes to salvation, because there's more. Ready for some more? Number two, the resurrection qualifies Jesus to send the Holy Spirit. Have a look at Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Because Jesus is now exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Because Jesus has been raised, the Father has given him the Holy Spirit to give to us. Which is exactly what he promised he would do in John chapter 16, verse 7. It will come up on the screen. He said, Very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Now, why is that? (laughs) Why did Jesus have to rise and then ascend to then send the Spirit? Well, it's because sending the Spirit is the job of the Messiah. The Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would restore his people, would bring the power of the Holy Spirit to revive them spiritually. And so the pouring out of God's Spirit is a blessing that belongs to this new era of the Messiah that's coming. The era of the new covenant that the Messiah would bring. And so when Jesus dies, rises and ascends, he, number one, forms the new covenant. (laughs) Then he begins that era and takes the throne as the Messiah. These are all the same thing in different ways. So that he is now qualified to do the Messiah's job of sending the Spirit. It's a bit complicated, but that's actually the connection that Peter's making at the start of this speech. The crowd, they see these uneducated fishermen. I'm not having a go at fishermen, but sometimes the Bible seems to be. Um, The crowd sees uneducated fishermen speaking boldly about Jesus in languages that they've never learned. And Peter says, it's happened just like the prophets predicted. He quotes, verse 16, the prophet Joel. And he says, the Spirit's been poured out, verse 16 which is a sign, verse 18, that those days, that era has come. 
The day, he calls it, of the Lord. The day when the Messiah is on the throne. The day when all God's people, not just a select few, will be filled with God's Spirit. The day, verse 21, when anyone who calls on His name will be saved. And so God designed it this way, so there'd just be that one more piece of evidence that Jesus hasn't just gone missing, He's gone mission complete. He's now on the throne as Messiah. And so how does this contribute to our salvation? Well, a bunch of ways. The Spirit helps us to spread the word, which we saw a few weeks ago is how people believe and are saved. And that's what you can see happening in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit giving them the, the, the tools and the courage to speak. And so what's the mark of a church filled with the Holy Spirit? They tell people about Jesus. There's one. Number two, when people hear this message... It's the Spirit that opens people's hearts to actually believe the gospel and so be saved. The mark of a church where the Spirit's at work is people believing in Jesus. And praise God, that's happening all over the world and here. Do you see how Jesus now rules his kingdom through his powerful word and through his Spirit? And so the resurrection brings us to salvation because it qualifies Jesus to do the Messiah's job, send the Spirit, which helps the speakers speak and helps us as hearers to hear, believe and be saved. Make sense? Not many nods. <laughs> Does it make sense? Okay. But wait, there's more. Let's do a Rafiki, look harder. Let's go one level deeper. Are you ready for this? How else does Jesus sending the Spirit contribute to our salvation? The Spirit, listen to this, is what unites us or who unites us to Jesus. Do you remember two weeks ago we saw that all the blessings of salvation are found in Jesus? They come to us by being united to Jesus, by us being joined into Jesus, like, like being in a plane, we go where he's going. Well, the Spirit is the one who does that who unites us to Jesus. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 9 to 11 on the screen. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Break it down, there's a lot going on there, we're not going to touch it all, but a few things to notice. Two sorts of people, those who've got God's spirit living in them and those who don't. Those who don't, they don't belong to Jesus. But those who do have the spirit in them, not only do they belong to Jesus, look what he says, verse 10, Christ, Christ is actually in them. Christ is in you. If, if your faith is in Jesus, you have the Spirit, you are joined spiritually to Christ so much that he's in you. Now, do you see the Trinity in this passage? You notice it in the way he uses the word Spirit, then he calls, it the, or calls him the Spirit of God, then he calls him the Spirit of Christ. How can he just keep changing what he says? Well, only if God is three in one, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but one God, and they're so united, so one, that to have any one of the three is to have all. Deep stuff here, but that's how he can move from saying, you know, the Spirit is in you, to then saying, therefore, Christ is in you. Christ is in you by the Spirit, who is God himself, and therefore the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. You following? 
<laughs> These are deep things, but it's a really simple idea, actually. You are united to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And when does that happen? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14 says it's the instant that you trust in Jesus. Do you see how the dominoes of your salvation work? Jesus rises, therefore he's the ascended to the Messiah, therefore he sends the Spirit to all who believe, which then unites you to Jesus, so then you get all the blessings of salvation. That's how you should do it. Long little train and then just like at the end. For example, this is why you'll be raised from the dead as well. If you're united to Jesus. Romans chapter 6 um, starts by talking about um, what we actually saw if you were down at Haven. Fantastic to see 21 of our brothers and sisters um, baptized uh, and to celebrate God's work there. Um, and Jono explained that baptism is a symbol of the, is an outward symbol of an inner reality. It's an outward symbol of being spiritually joined to Jesus. That's why at the haven, they, they laid them backwards in the water, symbolizing that just as Jesus died, now we're united to Jesus, joined to him, and so his death is our death. It's like we've died as well. That's how his punishment counts as our punishment. And then we raise them up out of the water, his resurrection becomes ours. It's a symbol of what's going on spiritually. So look at verse 5. He says, If we've been united with him in a death like his, by the Spirit we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. What happened to Jesus will happen to us because we're joined to him by the Spirit. He, he rose from the dead and so it's inevitable that you will also be rose from the dead. When you get this, you start to think it's weird that any Christian is still in the grave anywhere in the world. See, it's not weird that we will rise from the dead it's weird we haven't already risen from the dead. It's weird that we don't just immediately... It's like an elastic band is pulled tight, just waiting for the day that Jesus returns and we spring back to what's now normal for us to be raised just like him. One with him, I cannot die. Not really, not permanently, because my life is hid with Christ who is raised on high. That's one of the things that we get by, by being united with Christ. We, we are raised with him one day in the future. But actually, this passage goes on to say it's, it's already started. I wonder if you notice that in verse 4. Another thing we get from being united with Jesus is new spiritual life now. Look at verse 4. He says, this, all hap uh, this happened in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's what we saw in Ephesians chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago. If you're with us, we saw that we are by nature spiritually dead, but God made us alive with Christ. He breathes new spiritual life into our hearts. He changes our desires to want to please Him. He gives us new power to actually be able to choose to obey Him. And Paul says the resurrection is actually how that happens. It's like the, the, if we're a hang glider. We're like dead on the ground at the bottom of the cliff. And the, the resurrection provides the wind, the updraft that brings us back so we can keep flying spiritually. I don't know if that illustration works for you. kind of works for me though. Um, Paul says the resurrection is how that happens. It's how we get the power of Jesus' new life. It gives new life to our spirits even now, even in this life. 
It's actually not a different thing to the resurrection that will one day come to our bodies. It's just the beginning of it. The resurrection begins now with a new spiritual life, but will be finished one day when we have fully restored bodies that are then able with no sinful nature to, to fully always obey. But notice where this is this, in, in, the, in the plan of salvation. Notice a changed life is not how you get saved. It's a great gift that God gives you when he saves you. you know, sometimes I think we, we picture salvation like um, we're like a, a banged up, broken guitar out on the road for council cleanup. And Jesus, he comes along and he lovingly picks up that guitar and he takes it into the lounge room. And we're saved. We're no longer going to the tip. We're in the lounge room. But it's much better than that. Because that guitar is still broken. Jesus carries the guitar inside. And then he lovingly gets to work restoring it. Fixes it up. Tunes it. And then he plays beautiful music. For his own joy, for his glory, look how good I've fixed this guitar. For the enjoyment of everyone else in the house, for the beauty of it. Salvation includes this wonderful gift of God making you new, the way you were supposed to be. And all that happens by the power of his resurrected life, working in you by the Spirit who unites you to him, the Spirit he sent because of his resurrection. Do you see how the resurrection contributes? And so here we go, I want to expand our view of salvation again as we, as we get close to finishing. It's not just getting you to heaven, it's destroying all the effects of sin. Do you see that? The punishment for sin, he paid that on the cross. The power of sin is broken now by the resurrection in your life if you are a follower of Jesus and trusting in him. And then one day we'll be free even from the presence of sin when he returns. And so brothers and sisters, this gives you confidence in your fight against sin. Satan would love for you to think that sin is inevitable because then you just won't fight. But Romans chapter 6, verse 11 says, Remember that Jesus has broken sin's hold over you. You've been raised to life spiritually. You're not alone in the fight. He's with you by his spirit and so you can say no. But actually many times we won't. Because our bodies still have that sinful nature. Our bodies haven't yet caught up to that reality. And so the final thing to see tonight is, very briefly, that the resurrection gives us someone to help us when that happens, when we sin. And here it is, number three, the resurrection means Jesus stands in heaven to plead for us, like a lawyer to argue our case against anyone that would come and accuse us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. It's not that the Father doesn't like us, but luckily Jesus does. No, no, no. It's saying, how much more comforting is it to know that not only does the Father love you so much he sent the Son, but as well as that, Jesus who died for you now stands there with the Father ready to defend you against anyone that would come and accuse you. Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who can bring an accusation? Who can charge you with sin? No one. God has justified. Who then is the one who condemns? 
No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Um, this is called Jesus' heavenly intercession. Interceding means to, to speak up for someone, like to pray for them. Now, what evidence does Jesus use to defend you? Any guesses? It's not your life. It's the cross. Did someone say the cross? His life, yes, and especially the cross. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that. It, it pictures Jesus as a priest who takes what he did on the cross and offers it to God for you to deal with your sin, punishment paid. And he's not offering it again and again and again. Rather, he's forever saying, look what I've done for you, for him, for her. And so do you know what? Have you ever felt too guilty to pray? If your faith is in Jesus, if you're united with him, you might be feeling too guilty to pray, but Jesus himself prays for you. He prays to the Father for you. And if Satan or your own conscience or even God himself would try to accuse you of some sin, Jesus would say, objection, what sin? I died for that. It's gone. Do you see how the resurrection fits? It's, it's the reason that Jesus can do this. It's the reason that before the throne of God above, I've got a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives, lives forever to plead for me. You will never stop being forgiven because he will never stop pleading for you. And he can do it because he was raised. Now let me just pull it all together. Remember what we started with? Why does Paul say that Jesus was raised for our justification? Do you remember that? This verse here, coming up. Well, here's the frustrating thing. You ready for this? He never tells us what he means. Oh, go back one. Yep. <laughs> I've got thoughts. But Paul never, never says what he means. It's the only time he says it. And he never explains it. So you know what we've got to do? We've just got to guess. And that's actually why I've done what I've done tonight. I've tried to show you um, how Jesus' resurrection contributes to our salvation because that might be some of what's in Paul's mind. And so um, it could be any of the things we've seen. Here we go. Let's chuck it up now. I'm not going to go through all these in detail, but because of his resurrection, he sends the Spirit who unites us to Jesus, who justifies us. Is that what he means? Because of the resurrection, he stands before God's throne, pleading Jesus' death for us. Is that what it means? Is it because of the resurrection, he's vindicated by God as, as righteous, right with God, and, and now he can give that status to us? Or is it just a, a figure of speech, you know, like um, death and resurrection, just Paul's is using that as a bit of a package deal? Or is he saying um, Jesus was raised because the cross worked, because we had been justified and sin dealt with, now he was finished that work and he could be raised. The, the Greek actually allows for that translation. Um, it could be any of those, it could be all of them. They're all true. Dan, do you still think it's number five? Yeah. Yeah, you almost convinced me. I think it's number three. The resurrection is the way that Jesus gets given this status from God, declared by God, vindicated by God. You are right with me. And then that status becomes ours by union with Christ, which is number one. So I might be hedging my bets there. Now look, if it mattered which of those it was, Paul would have told us. 
But we can see why Paul might be saying something like that, can't we? And so let me just finish, step back and apply all of this to us. I hope tonight you've caught a glimpse of how all of these things in Jesus' life and ministry contribute to our salvation. Are your minds blown a little bit? Don't tell me if they're not. But listen, don't worry if you don't catch every little piece. You've got your whole life to go deeper into these glorious truths. What I want you to see, though, is that it all hangs on the cross and resurrection. They really are a package deal. The resurrection is the key piece that enables all of those steps that follow. But without the cross, none of the rest would matter. You see, the Spirit helps us tell people about what Jesus did on the cross so they can be united to Jesus and receive the salvation that he bought on the cross. And that's why Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a bit like, um, and I'll finish this story, like a heart transplant. You know, to get a heart transplant, you need the diagnosis, you need an anaesthetist, hard word to say, anaesthetist, and then you, the transplant, then you need the nurses and the checkups and maybe ongoing medication. But the person that actually donates the heart or, or does the heart transplant itself is so central to the whole thing that if you said, that person saved my life by giving me a heart, would anyone run up to you and say, whoa, 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 the nurses helped as well. Brothers and sisters, we're saved by the cross. That's the heart transplant. But the doctor, Jesus, doesn't stop there. He continues his patient care until he is certain that you are cured forever. Have great confidence. He can and will do that because of the resurrection. Lord Jesus, you are a great saviour. We praise you that you are a living Lord, ruling your world by your word and spirit. And you will return to bring the final day of salvation. And we pray, please, that that word of salvation will go out from us, each of us, and us as a church. And that many people will turn to Jesus and be saved. And Lord, help us to keep trusting you, to keep fighting sin by your power, until the day we are back with you. In Jesus' name, amen.